Mark Drake is on a mission to train leaders around the world about the miracle and mystery of Christ living his life in and through all who will believe. Join us on this journey into the heart of the real new covenant and the transforming power of true grace. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing so far? Awesome. Wonderful. Listen, I, I want you, if you would, to uh, uh, to get out your Bibles if you're taking notes. And uh, I, I hope that you do. You should be because there will be a test. But the test is the way we live our lives. And the test is how we disciple others. And with all that's going on with us as a church family and and the physical challenges of the building coming down and now going back up better than ever before. And with all of those challenges that are going on, the ultimate challenge is that we be people who are making disciples. And that you and I, uh, as the book of Hebrews says, it is high time that we ought to be teaching others. And that's where we are in a walk with God. And each of us have a challenge before us that we incorporate the truth of how to follow Jesus into our own lives, but that we also be sharing that with others so that they can also learn how to reproduce the life of Christ in them. This morning we want to continue on with the topic of trust. And Josh has done an excellent job over the past two weeks in teaching about learning to trust the Father and that the new covenant is all about developing and growing in our ability to trust. Now, I, I don't, you don't need to turn there. If you're making notes, write this down, Acts chapter 12. But if you've been in church very much, it's a story that's probably familiar to you. The story in the middle of Acts chapter 12 is the story about Herod arresting Peter. And because... Uh, of the time of day and the time of the week for the Jewish calendar that it was, Herod was intending to kill Peter because the Scripture says in Acts 12 that he saw that it pleased the Jews when he attacked the Christians. So he arrested Peter. Uh, he was going to be, execute him the next day. And most of you know the story. In the middle of the night, an angel appears to Peter and miraculously opens the doors to the prison and lets Peter go free. And it so freaked Herod out and, and uh, the Roman rulers that they just backed off for a while because the fear of the Lord came upon them when they saw what happened. Now, that's a great charismatic story. Peter was in trouble. He trusted God. The church prayed. And an angel showed up and Peter got a miracle. That's a wonderful charismatic story. The three or four verses right before this story are verses that as charismatics, we're not sure how to handle. Because this is the way this story begins. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, one of the original apostles, put to death with the sword. When he saw that it met with the approval of the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now here's the fullness of that story. Herod arrests James, who's one of the original 12 apostles, and had his head cut off. Then when he saw that that made him have more favor with the Jewish leaders, he proceeded to arrest Peter. But in the middle of the night, an angel comes and lets Peter out. Now, it's charismatics who believe in miracles and I'm going to say it now, and I'll have to keep repeating it throughout this teaching, no doubt. I believe in miracles. I believe in miracles. I believe in a God who miraculously intervenes in our lives. But I also believe in a God who is sovereign and has a will 
or plan or destiny or intention for every single one of us that is so far beyond what our finite little itsy-bitsy minds can comprehend that the issue in our new covenant walk with Christ is learning to trust Him. And the only time trust utterly, truly matters is when things don't go the way we want them to go. So when we read the entire story of Acts chapter 12, here's what we find. Herod arrests John or James and cuts his head off. He arrests Peter and Peter gets a miraculous deliverance. Then we have to ask the question, well, what was the difference between James and Peter? Why did James get his head cut off and Peter got an angelic visitation and miraculous deliverance? That, that, that miraculous deliverance tends to fit in better with my charismatic theology. But the reality is, well, just let me put it in the form of a question. Who got the eternally better deal? Come on, you're afraid to say it. I know, it's all right. Say it. James, what did the Apostle Paul say to the Philippians? It is better for me to die and go to be instantly with the Lord. But it's better for you if I hang around and teach a little longer. So I guess I'll hang around a little longer. By the way, he wrote that from prison. And he never got free. But he understood that God had a purpose and a plan. And he has a purpose, plan, and destiny for each one of us. And the ultimate issue is not whether we can have faith to command God to do what we want him to do. The ultimate issue is whether we have faith to trust him to do for us what is his good pleasure and his good will. The early apostles believed this. They believed this. So they were able to see times of great miracles. But they were also able to live through times of great suffering and great dilemma. Now listen, when we talk about trust, we have to understand that in every single trial, every single trouble that you and I face, there are certain questions that are ultimately going to have to be answered. Go ahead and put number one up if you would, please. My title for this this morning is the who, why, what, when, where, and how of faith. Now, as an author, I had to learn very quickly that if I'm going to write something that's understandable to people, that I have to follow the same basic rules that every newspaper reporter throughout all of time has had to follow, every author has had to follow. Uh, if you go to journalism school, one of the first things that's taught to you uh, about being able to write a news article is that you have to be able to answer these questions. Who is this about? Why is this happening? What is it that's actually going to happen? When does it take place? Where does it happen? And how does the story unfold? In every trial that you and I face, these are the questions that we're going to have to battle over in the realm of our faith. Who's going to help us in the midst of this trouble? Why are they going to help us? What are they going to do to actually help us? When is our help going to come? Where? Are we finally going to get our answer? And how is this problem going to be solved? The dilemma that you and I face is that some of these issues are our business. Some of those issues are none of our business. But this is the dilemma of faith and trust. There is probably no single greater issue in the Christian life that beats us up with condemnation than these issues about faith. How many know the battle that when you're in the midst of a trial, and by the way, let me define a trial or biblical tribulation. It's a problem that when you pray gets worse. See, if I've got a challenge and I pray and God instantly takes care of it, there's no trial there. There's no tribulation there. By the way, there's no endurance there. There's no perseverance there. There's, and we could go on and on and on and on and on. Now, again, let me say, I believe in miracles. 
But if we're going to stay true to the biblical record, then we must learn to put our expectation in what the Word of God says and not just what we think it says. One of the great dilemmas that we have, especially today, maybe more today than possibly any other time in history, and that is we've got more believers numerically on the face of the earth, and we've got more believers who know less about the Bible than ever before. We have a Bible illiteracy problem in our nation and in our world today. Because of the nature of our society, we tend to be fast food Bible studiers. We want little bits. We want little chunks. We don't want to have to sit too long. We don't want to have to take notes. Sorry. We don't want to have to look back at them and say, we don't actually want to get in there. And so the dilemma comes in that we end up with Bible verses that we think we know, only to find out that if we actually look that verse up, the words before it and the words after it totally change what we thought that verse meant. In Bible study, we refer to that as context. Everything has to be taken in its context. So I could get up here today and say to you, listen, the Bible says that when Peter got thrown into prison, an angel came and got him out. And so I tell you on the basis of that Bible verse that every single time you get in trouble, God is going to send an angel and set you free. And that would be a lie. That would be an untruth. It would be based on a half truth. Did God send an angel and get Peter out? Yes, so that's true, but is that all the truth of that story? No, that's just half the truth. You say, well, why did God deliver Peter but not James? Well, there must have been hidden sin in James' life. How many think there was hidden sin in Peter too? We read in the book of Galatians that some years later, Paul has to rebuke Peter to his face because of his prejudice against Gentile believers, he wouldn't even eat with them when the Jewish believers showed up. Is that sin? Absolutely it is. Well, I guess James didn't have enough faith. Wait a minute. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We already agreed that the one who got the better deal out of all this was James. He already passed from this fallen life to his eternal life in the presence of God. Peter had to live many more years, suffer many more things before it was God's will. The answer to the question, what was the difference between the two, is simply that God had a purpose, a plan, and a will. And the issue is whether we're going to learn to trust. But in order to trust, we have to deal with these. Now put up, a, 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 do we have slide two? Put that up. This verse is one that we have to deal with. Here we go in 1 John 3, 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Confidence and condemnation. These are the two issues that we always end up having to do battle over in our own lives. Confidence or condemnation. And if we're not careful, we will end up taking pieces of Bible verses and the enemy will actually use the Bible itself to beat us up. By the way, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, what was the principal weapon that Satan used to try to attack Jesus and tempt him in the wilderness? The Word of God. He quoted parts of Old Testament Bible verses to Jesus. Apparently, he forgot that he was talking to the author. But he actually quoted from the book of Psalms, but he only quoted portions of what was being said. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about when I say we only quote portions. Hebrews 11.6, this is the way it begins. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, if ever there was a Bible verse that could beat us up, that's one right there. How many have felt condemned when you thought about that verse right there? Come on, tell the truth. How many have felt, oh, well, 
Apparently, I don't have enough faith. Why? Because I prayed and I didn't get a miraculous deliverance for my problem. So apparently, I don't have enough faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So I guess it's impossible for me to please God. The dilemma is we're only reading half of a verse. And when we only read half of a verse, we open ourselves up for the enemy to actually use the word of God against us. Now, this issue of faith is one of the biggest areas of condemnation. It's one of the biggest areas of, of advantage that the enemy has in our lives. And because we all struggle with it, and we do, but because we do, we end up getting all kinds of, well, I'll just say the way I feel about it, all kinds of crazy doctrinal ideas. If you go through an average Bible bookstore right now, you will see titles like this. These are actual titles that are available for purchase right now. How to pray and get anything you want from God. Only fourteen ninety-five. Here's another title that is currently for sale right now in Bible bookstores and at Amazon.com. You can command the hand of God. That's a popular teaching. Turn on some of the Christian TV channels and you'll hear preacher after preacher that will tell you that real faith is that God has placed dominion in your hand and he is waiting for you to command his hand. Here's another one. God can only do on the earth what a person by their faith allows him to do. That is a popular teaching that is going around the world today. You hear it everywhere you go if you go to these conferences. You see it in the Bible bookstores. Here's another one. God will only respond when you have faith about the specifics of what, when, where, and how when you pray. Now, the dilemma is that I can find pieces of Bible verses that will teach or seem to teach each of those things. But when we take the Word of God in context, suddenly we have a different dilemma that we have to deal with. Let me ask you this question. Who do you think we should put more trust in? People who are trying to interpret what Jesus said 2,000 years after he said it? Or the very men who lived with him, walked with him, ate with him, talked to him, asked him questions, and then in the book of Acts and the epistles, lived out what they heard Jesus teach. Who do you think we ought to trust more? I think we ought to put a confidence in the men and women who were with him, heard him, and then their lives are laid out as a model to us in the book of Acts. You know, when James got his head cut off, the believers were sad and missed him. But none of them, if you read the chapter, none of them suggested that, well, James must have been out of the will of God. James must have not had enough faith. James must have had hidden sin. None of them talked that way because they all understood that they were serving a sovereign God and that they were serving a God who was working his good and perfect will out both in James' life and in Peter's life. The dilemma is, what must we believe when we are in a trial? When we are in a struggle, what must we believe? Well, let's just take a look at the next slide and look at this Hebrews 11. Give us that. Here's the rest of the verse. But without faith or and without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, here's the rest of the verse. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The kind of faith that you and I have to have to please God believes two things. Number one, what must you believe? That God is and that he is God. How many believe that? All right, you're 50% there. You're half the way there. How many of you believe that God in his goodness 
will reward those who seek him. How many believe that? You've just qualified for the kind of faith that pleases God. Let me say it again. You've just qualified for the kind of faith that pleases God. Now, here's the lie of the enemy. The lie of the enemy is that's not enough. That's not enough. In order to please God with faith, you have to have faith that tells God or determines for God when, where, and how he's going to solve your problem. See, there's a difference between needing a job and asking your father to provide one. There's a difference in that. And picking the job you want and then telling God that's the one he has to give you. But you see, the lie of the enemy is that we've got to get involved in somehow divining or understanding the when, where, and how. When what this verse is all about is who's going to help me and why is he going to help me. The sovereign God is the one who's going to help me. And the reason he's going to help me is because he is good and his mercy towards me endures forever. He has qualified me through the offering of his son, Paul writes to the Ephesians. So we've been qualified to receive our inheritance from God, not by anything we've done, but that we have believed in the offering of his son. But if we allow the enemy to beat us up over this issue of when, where, and how, we've moved out of the realm of being his children, his servants, his followers, and we've moved into the realm of trying to tell God what to do. It's one thing to ask. It's another thing to trust the rest of the teaching. Do you know that in what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught two truths about prayer. And both of these truths seem to be contradictory, and yet in Jesus' mind, they were completely compatible. In that one teaching on the side of the hill, Jesus taught, he who asks, he who seeks, he who knocks shall receive. Then he turned right around and said, however, before you even start to ask, remember, the Father knows what you need even before you ask. And Jesus found no contradiction in those two truths. That as children who are being taught by the Spirit how to trust the Father, we are supposed to ask for what we think we need. Then we rest in trust that the Father knows what we need even before we ask. See, Jesus taught against fatalism. Oh, well, why should I pray? God already knows what he's supposed to do anyway, so I'm just going to let God do whatever he wants to do, and there's no reason for me to pray. That is an unbiblical position to take. The Bible is clear that we are to make our needs known to God with thanksgiving, that we are to bring our supplications before the Lord. Well, we can only ask based on what we think is good, but then we trust the Father to do what he knows is good. Hebrews chapter 11 is an interesting chapter because it starts out with this issue of faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, and it goes all the way through. Put up uh, uh, slide four. Now, when you read Hebrews chapter 11, this is the heroes of faith. This is where it says, by faith, Noah did this. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Sarah did this. By faith, Noah did this. By faith. And it lists all of these great miracles and awesome things that people by faith did. Beginning in verse 32, which is not up here, but just listen for a moment. It says this. And what more shall I say? I do not have, I do not have time to tell about Gideon. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, or the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received their dead back, raised to life again. Now, the next words, these are the very next words about these people of faith. Others were tortured. And refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings while still others were chained and put in. Now listen, this is the faith chapter. This is the faith chapter. This is the chapter that says, in God's will, some received mighty miracles. 
And in God's will, some were empowered to endure. Well, the, the front row is getting it. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, destitute, destitute. Starting in September, there will be a new reality TV show. This is not a joke. It is the truth on the Oxygen Network. It's called The Preachers of L.A. It's a reality TV show that's going to follow the day-to-day life of six megachurch pastors who teach everybody who is a child of God should be a millionaire. And they live as millionaires. By the way, on the free will giving of their people, most of whom are not millionaires, but the pastors are. This is the faith chapter. Destitute. Persecuted. Mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Oh, if we're not careful, we'll fall into the charismatic trap that says, God is only glorified when I get my miracle. Are you there? If we're not careful, we'll fall into the charismatic trap of thinking that faith is only faith if I get to move my mountain. If I get what I want. But these people, the Bible says, The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. Well, I'll tell you what, that doesn't fit with the teaching I did 30 years ago about, bless God, I'm a king's kid. I deserve the very best. That doesn't fit in with that. And yet the world was not worthy of these people. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that not so that only together with us would they be made perfect. In this area of faith, what you and I must get our roots solidly rooted into, go down deep, is in the who and the why. Of our problem. The when, where, and how is up to God. But the who is going to help me and the why is he going to help me is the real battle of faith. I would suggest to you that none of us in this room today truly doubt that God can do whatever he genuinely wants to do. That's not the battle. Our battle is not, well, is God able? That's not the battle that you and I face. The battle you and I face more often than not is, I know he's able, I'm just not sure if he's willing for me. Are you there? Look, if we would say to, if we would say to Carlos, Carlos is facing a serious, raise your hand, Carlos. Carlos is facing a serious trial. And so he asks us to pray for him. None of us would hesitate gathering around Carlos and praying, Father, we know you love Carlos and we know your great power. And so we're asking you to give Carlos what he needs to solve this problem, to fix this dilemma in his life. We wouldn't hesitate to do that. And yet when we look in the mirror and begin to pray for ourselves, we don't normally start off praying that way. Normally, we start off praying for ourselves more like this. Father, just before I get to what I need you to do, I would like to repent of not reading my Bible as much as I have. And uh, I, I know that I've not gone to all the meetings like I should have. And I haven't treated my wife or my dog the way I should have. And I just, I just want to plead the blood over all that, Lord. And now, now, now that we've got all that, would you please help me? How many know what I'm talking about? See, look, we wouldn't do that to Carlos. However, none of us would pray for Carlos thinking that somehow he is so perfectly pure that he is going to earn God's intervention 
by his purity. We wouldn't pray for him that way. We would pray for him because we know God really loves him. We know he's a human being. We know he has weaknesses, but we know the Father understands his weaknesses. But when we look in the mirror, the lie of the enemy is, no, that's not good enough for you. But it is. It is. When we get ourselves rooted and grounded in understanding that what is our business is who's going to help me and why is he going to help me. I must get rooted in that. Now, before we, before we get done with this today, I want to deal with another battle of faith that the enemy throws at us. And that is, don't you know that your problem is you're a double-minded man? How many know the Bible verse in James that says, the double-minded man should not believe that he can receive anything from the Lord because being double-minded, he is unstable in all of his ways. How many know that? You know that verse? All right, let's actually take a look at the context. Amazingly, there is a context to that verse. So let's look at the context. Slide, uh, slide number five. James 1, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Let me say that one more time. Because this does not fit in well with our basic charismatic theology. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. How many would say that takes a miracle of God's gift of faith right there? And yet he talks about it as if it's the normal thing. Why? Because these people believe something that we are struggling to really get a hold of. They believe that God was, in fact, in complete control. They believe that there was something more important for their eternal life than getting their instantaneous miracle right now. There is something more important. There is something more important. Now, I'll say it again. I believe in miracles. I ask for miracles. When we were worshiping this morning, I was asking the Lord to heal the damage in my neck so I could be pain-free. I'd like to be pain-free. That would be awesome. I believe in miracles. I'm going to continue to ask. I'm not going to beg or plead, but I am going to continue to ask. However, I want to be like these people who learn straight from Jesus, not 2,000 years later with us preachers interpreting what Jesus said. They were with him. They learned from him. This James, by the way, is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. He learned from Jesus. And he says, consider it all pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, because you know, because you know. Come on, say that. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. There is no other way to develop perseverance than for your prayers to go unanswered for some period of time. Hello. Say, oh, Mark, this is really great. Would you hurry up and get done so I can get out of here and go read something that's uplifting? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work. So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom. All right. If any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom when? What? In trials. We're in the midst of trials. Context, context, context. We're in the midst of trials. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask of God who gives generously to. If you underline your Bible, here's a place to underline. And you know if your Bible's too expensive to underline in, buy a cheaper Bible, bring it next week. He should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Without finding fault. Without finding fault. I beg of you, the next time you pray for God to fix a problem in your life, do not begin by trying to repent of everything you can think of. Because this verse says God will give you wisdom in the midst of your trial and he will not find fault in you. Are you there? God will not withhold simply because you're not yet perfect. If that were true, none of us would get prayers answered. God gives generously without finding fault and it will be given to him. What will be given to him? Wisdom in the midst of unresolved trial. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt when he asks. When he asks what? For wisdom. 
Are you there? When he asks for wisdom. Now, see, here's what the devil does. No, no, what that means is when you ask for a specific thing, if you doubt for a moment that you're going to get that specific thing, you're a double-minded man and you're not going to get anything from God. So we end up walking through the car lot because our car broke down and we need another one. We pick out the car we want. And then we say, in Jesus' name, that one right there is mine. That one right there. Right there. Yeah, we go to a Christian car dealer. Only find out they rip you off more than, oh, no, I shouldn't have said it. No, that's not true. A double-minded man is one who does not believe that God will generously give you wisdom and He will not find fault with you when He does it. When He asks, asks for what? Wisdom. He must believe and not doubt. Believe what? That God is one who gives generously and doesn't find fault. That's what you have to believe. He must believe and not doubt. Believe what? God will give generously and not find fault. Because he who doubts that God will give generously and does not find fault is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Why is he unstable? Because if I fear that God is going to find fault with me, I am never going to be able to build trust. Because all the enemy has to do is remind me of an area of my life that is still less than perfect, that is still carnal. And by the way, the devil, when he does that, doesn't have to lie about you. <laughs> You're getting it, some of you, right? 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 He doesn't have to make up something and say, God, you know, and then God says, no, no, that's not the truth. He doesn't have to do that. All he has to do is tell the truth about us. We are less than Jesus. We are less than perfect in his image. We are, we are, we are. But God has placed all of that upon his son so he's not finding fault with us when we come to him with wisdom about what we should do in the midst of an unresolved trial. Why am I unstable? Because I'm not sure how God feels about me. I'm unstable because I'm not sure whether God is finding fault with me or not. I'm not sure whether my inconsistency is going to uh, 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 keep me out of the will of God. And then we get into all of this deal of uh, there's the perfect will of God and then there's the, the good will of God and then there's the permissible will of God and then there's the will of God where he's just really ticked off and there's just all these wills of God. But that is not what the Bible teaches. And nor did these men and women who lived with Jesus live with that kind of fear. So when we talk about a double-minded man, we're not talking about you have to have faith for that job right there no matter what. How many have lived long enough to know that you have on several occasions gotten what you wanted only to find out later you wish you wouldn't have gotten it? How many have a sneaking suspicion that God knows better than you do? Absolutely. Father, I need a job. I don't know which one, but I'm asking you for a job. I'm going to knock on the doors. If one opens, I'm going to start to go through it. I'm asking you to keep it open or close it, depending on your purpose for me. But I trust you as one who gives wisdom without finding fault in me. I am rooted and grounded in that. So I'm not tossed to and fro. Slide six. Here is the dilemma. Trust requires trouble. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that is that slide six? <clears throat> oh, here we go. Sorry. I probably misnumbered there. Trust requires trouble. There is no other way for trust to be built but for us to find ourselves in the midst of trouble. Look up the story of the disciples 
when Jesus said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. My goodness, there's all kinds of preaching and teaching about this story. When they get out in the middle of the, uh, of the, of the sea, the, the storm comes up and Jesus is asleep in the boat. You know this story. But the disciples reveal in the midst of this story, Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. But in the midst of this story, Jesus tells us, or we're told by the writer, what they were struggling with faith about. When they woke Jesus up, their words to Jesus were, don't you care that we're going to drown? Don't you care? Their words were not, don't you have power? Their words were, don't you care? They knew he had power to stop the wave. They just didn't understand why he didn't, and they begin to doubt what? His power or his love and care. It was doubting his love for them that caused him to say, Oh, you of little faith. Perseverance can only be produced when our problems persist. Good news. Perseverance can only be produced when our problems persist. This is why people like James James could say, count it all joy when you fall in to all kinds of trials because it is doing something of eternal value for you. Let me read a few verses really fast and you can get the CD later on. We read James 2, consider it all joy, my brothers. James 1.12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's skip over slide 8. And go on to slide nine. I'm going to wrap it up with this story. You know this story. This is where Jesus is teaching. Sermon on the Mount. Let's go on to the next one, if you would, to, uh, to Matthew chapter six. Oh, these are all good stuff here. Did you see it real fast? Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Now, why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Here's my question. When Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, where was their battle of faith? What faith was he talking about? Was he talking about the faith to tell God how to specifically provide food for me? Is that what he was talking about when he said faith? Well, actually, he wasn't. And the evidence of that is real clear. If you go back up in the middle of this section, in verse 26, you'll notice he says, Are you not much more valuable than they? Now, here's the question Jesus asked these men. Do you believe that you and your well-being is more important to the Father than any of the other created things? Do you believe you are more valuable to the Father? When he says, O ye of little faith, the context is you don't believe that the Father considers you more valuable than all the animals, all the plants, all the planets. You are more valuable to the Father. And when you know that, 
You can simply ask and rest. Ask and rest. Ask and rest. Say, well, that's what I want to do. That's what God wants for us. But for that to happen, we must constantly ask this question. Do I believe that I am more important than any other created thing? That is the battle. That is the dilemma. Do I believe? This was the question. Let's go on to the last slide, would you please? This is the question we must be able to answer. The biggest issue of trust is how I answer this question. Am I truly more valuable to the Father? In every trial, I must answer these two specific questions. Who will help me? The answer is the sovereign, faithful Father. Now, Jesus used the word Father repeatedly in this uh, Sermon on the Mount teaching. This word Father was very new to these disciples because in the Old Testament, you will not find David, Moses, Abraham. You will not find any of those people referring to God as their heavenly, individually heavenly Father. You'll find one place in the Old Testament where God is referred to as the father of the nation. But in the Old Testament, the people of God did not refer to him as father. They felt that that was being much too familiar and not enough fearful respect. But when Jesus comes on the scene and he teaches them to pray, he says, this is how you start. Our father, our father. This was a radically new concept for them. Because Father denotes a relationship of loving, trusting care. So in every dilemma, I've got to be able to answer, number one, who's going to help me? If I can't help myself, then who's going to help me? Whatever means he may use, who is going to help me is the sovereign, faithful Father. And number two, why will he help me? And the answer must be, because of his great love for me, he considers me more valuable. And this is the question Jesus asked them. And so I ask you and I ask myself, do I believe? that I am more valuable to God the Father than any other created thing. And when my life is rooted and grounded in that belief based on the Scripture, then you and I can stand in the midst of trial. We can be the person James talks about who considers it joy because we know that we're gaining something awesome in God. The ability to stand and persevere. I believe in miracles. I ask for miracles. But I understand that my eternal life, my eternal life is more deeply impacted and affected when I learn to persevere in trust believing I am more valuable to the Father because I take Him at His word. I'd like for you to stand with me if you would, please. Now, I understand that this is the struggle that we all face. I really do. It's the struggle that every one of us has to deal with. But this life in the New Covenant is all about developing trust. And the Scripture is clear that it teaches us to ask for what we think we need based on what we think is best. God knows that's the only way we can ask. God understands that the only way we can ask Him for help is by asking based on what we think is the best. But because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, we don't know what's going to happen a moment from now, we ask for what we think is best, and then we rest in the knowledge that we are so valuable in the Father's heart that He will take care of us according to His good pleasure for us. Now, I understand the battle. I do, I do, I do. And I understand that there are some of us who are more heavily into that battle right now than others, depending on what season in life we're in. I don't want you to leave this morning still struggling with this belief about your value in the eyes of the Father. The Holy Spirit wants to pour the love of God into our hearts. 
so that our hearts tell our minds what to think. Are you there? The Holy Spirit wants to pour the love of the Father into our hearts so that our hearts are convinced my sovereign Father will take care of me. I ask based on what I think is best and I trust Him to do what He knows is best. I do both of those things. And we'd like to pray for you if you need an infilling of the love of the Father into your heart. The Holy Spirit wants to do that for you. He does. He does. So I want you to bow your heads, everybody, just for a moment. Just bow your heads, just for a moment. If you're here this morning and Jesus Christ is not Lord of your life, there is no better time than right now to surrender your life to Him, to let Him come and live inside of you and begin the awesome journey of changing you as a child of God from the inside out. So in just a moment, we're going to invite you to come forward. I want the elders and the care leaders, pastors among us to come forward now, please. The elders, care leaders, pastors, come forward now, please. In a moment, if you don't know Jesus but you'd like to, I'm going to ask you to come forward. But number two, if you're a believer here and you're struggling right now, you're specifically in the battle right now of where you're facing a trial, you don't know what to do. And the lie of the enemy to you has been that because of fault in your life, God is not going to help you. The Holy Spirit wants to wash that out of you. He wants to wash that out of you. And He wants to do it before you leave. So we're going to dismiss you and let you go. But if you need the Holy Spirit to pour the love of God fresh and new into your heart so that you can be rooted and grounded, we want to pray for you before you go. If you do not know Jesus as Lord of your life, we want you to come forward and receive Him and let somebody talk and pray with you so you can know that He is coming to live inside of you and that your sins are forever forgiven. Father, in Jesus' name, move on us this morning. Encourage those who may not know you that today is their day, that right now is their moment. And Lord, for your children who are here and in specific times of struggle and battle and they're hurting because they've done everything they know to do and they don't know what else to do, Father, I just pray that you will pour out the love of the Father into their heart by the work of the Spirit and cause them to be rooted and grounded in the knowledge that they are more valuable. How do we answer that question? Am I more valuable? Holy Spirit, pour the answer into our hearts so we can answer with a resounding yes in Jesus' name. If you don't know the Lord, now's the time to come forward right now. If you need prayer because the season of your life you're struggling, now's the time to come forward. So I want you to come forward now. If that's you, come forward now. For the rest of you are dismissed in the name of the Lord. Have a great week and know the grace of God growing inside of your heart. Join us on this new covenant journey at markdrake.org.